0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, introducing Your Cancer, a program to spotlight the cancer community and recognize those at the forefront of cancer care. Learn more at yourcancer.org. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about building a relationship with your physician with Shantana Hazel. Ms. Hazel is an author, healthcare advocate, and founder of the Sister Girl Foundation. And Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine.
1: Maybe we can start by you telling us a little bit about
2: yourself and your journey. Okay, that sounds wonderful. I am a healthcare advocate. I actually dealt with a lot of health and wellness issues myself, which brought me to becoming an advocate. I am a mother, a grandmother. I have several grandchildren, and I'm so excited about doing that because that's a little fun. (laughs) You have little ones running around to give you and keep you energetic, as well as keep you on your toes. And I am so passionate about the work that I do. And I wanted just to make sure that things that I went through in life and in my journey of having over 16 surgeries with endometriosis, I wanted people not to be able you know, to suffer in silence. I wanted everyone to have a voice and not go through the different channels that I did. And so I'm kind of giving them the cheat sheet. You know, it was a long journey. Um, like I said, I spent a lot of days and nights in hospitals and doctor's offices. And so I'm off to a better start these days. And it's all about giving back to the community, right?
1: So tell us, how, how how did your journey start? I mean, um, tell us from the beginning. I mean, usually people's story starts with once upon a time, I was perfectly well. And
2: then dot, dot, dot. So once upon a time, I was I was really healthy. So I thought. You know, my symptoms started when I was 11 years old with my menstrual cycle, and I didn't have any ideas that what I was experiencing, the heavy cramping, the heavy bleeding, just the pain of it all during my menstrual cycles, I thought it was normal. You know, my mom used to tell me to use a heating pad or, you know, take certain things to help with my pain and drink tea, tea, anything warm keeps makes the body feel great. And so none of those things works for me. And it became a time to where over the years, it started getting worse. And, you know, I started going to the doctors and I was told that I would never have children. As I said in the beginning, I am a grandmother and I have children. Well, I have a son that I birthed and. And so going back and forth to the doctor's offices and not really understanding that I had an illness at the time. And so as you could imagine, it was very frustrating because endometriosis is a disease that not many really talked about at that time. Um, we're making a lot of leeway now. And so... I started going back and forth to um, just different facilities, trying to get relief, trying to get an answer to what was happening to me. Because at some point I realized it wasn't normal, that something was really going on with me and I needed some medical attention. And so what I did was I ended up having an ectopic pregnancy throughout my journey. And that was the turning point, I want to say for me, of getting diagnosed and getting the proper treatment. But even through that, it it took a while. It took a lot of different medications. And, you know, I I started off with a team and I didn't understand the importance of building my relationship with the physician, being open and honest with them. And so I used to hold back a lot. And, you know, I started dealing with depression and anxiety because it was very tough having pains and things happening to my body and not understanding what it was. And so I went many years undiagnosed about 14. And I just kept going and living and I thought I was living and I wasn't well. I've had a lot of days to where I couldn't get out of my bed, um, excruciating pain, fatigue, just you name it, I had it. And so I wasn't always the greatest person to be around because going through those changes, you could imagine that It became times to where I didn't even really like myself at some point because I just felt like I was always the sick girl, always the girl complaining about something being wrong. And it was hard for my family and friends to understand what was happening to me when I didn't understand it myself. And so I used to, I suffered in silence because I used to hold it all in. And at some point I stopped really complaining because I felt like no one wanted to hear that. No one want, everyone has their own things that they're dealing with. And so no one really wants to hear the girls that, that cries wolf as they would call it. And I really had something happening to me and um, it, it really was a horrific time because I felt isolated Although at, at points I did have some great support and then I also had people who I thought would support me, but they actually turned their backs on me because like I said, and I, I don't hold that against anyone because you if you don't know, you don't know. And so that brought me to today, you know, through that journey has been um, over 30 years of living with endometriosis, as well as other um, health issues. And so I'm better. I'm better in a sense, but I'm not cured. And so I like to say I am living a whole life, regardless of the illnesses I may have. So, so this
1: started when you were 11 years old and you were having difficulty with your menstrual cycle. Um, You went back and forth to the doctor. Was it really an issue of them not being able to diagnose your issue or, or what was, what was really the issue that you found problematic in um, in terms of that?
2: So the issue for me was not being heard and, I'm not quite sure if the doctor that I had at the time understood the the level of endometriosis, even to the capacity that I had it. So I'm not really sure on his end, but I can speak to how I felt. And I felt as if I was being dismissed. I felt as if um, no one was listening to me. You know, I knew I had the pains, but I actually had the doctor tell me that it was all in my head and you you start believing that after time, you know, if if nothing comes up and they do blood work and that's all they ever did was run labs. And that wasn't the answer. The answer was really taking my medical history and going from there. And that didn't happen for many years to come. And like I said, just not being heard. That was the biggest thing. Not being heard, the doctor not being knowledgeable of what was going on with me and not being honest enough to himself to say, this is beyond my realm. I'm going to have to um, send you to another specialist. And right. that should have happened, but it did it.
1: So, so was it your, your family physician that you went and talked to initially?
2: It was actually, um, I was young. I was a teenager or at your the time. Or pediatrician, so I, had my, I guess. It was uh, a play, like a, a place, kind of like a, a clinic in a sense. It was one of those type of facilities that I, I visited um, as a teenager. And when I became a mom, I actually had my own OBGYN at that time. And this is who was treating me or not treating me for the endometriosis.
1: So, so at 11 years old, it was initially going to this clinic. Had you been to the clinic before? I mean, did you have a relationship with the doctors there or was that part of the problem?
2: Well, at 11, I didn't go to the doctors at 11. I actually didn't start going to the doctor until I was in high school. I was about 16, 17 years old. And at that point, it was just bad. Everything, my my symptoms had intensified. And my mom said, okay, let's go to the doctor. It's time to go now. And that's when I started going as a, as a teenager. And it was the clinic, which there was pediatricians there that I had. And I saw the same person on a regular basis. And so it was more so of them really just not knowing and just thinking because it ran in my family, the uh, menstrual cycles being abnormal or heavy painful, all of that. I, I've seen a lot of women in my family deal with the same thing. And so when I did give a little bit of my medical history in the beginning, it was just brushed off as something like that. Well, you know, if your mom went through it, or if you had an aunt that went through it or anyone else close to you in your family, then that's what it is.
1: So really not um, diagnosing the issue or
2: being able to treat it. Right. Absolutely. It was mask for a long time. You know, take something over the counter. And when that stopped working, that really never worked for me. You may take the edge off a little bit, but I still was in pain every every day of my life. Imagine from 11. I am 45 today. I I've been having pain this long.
1: Oh, my goodness. And so you said that um During this journey of yours, you you had an ectopic pregnancy and you thought that that was really the, the turning point. Tell us a little bit more about that.
2: When I had the ectopic pregnancy, now this is a story because no one really, li- no, not even really, no one listened to me. I went back and forth to my doctor's office, to the hospital. And finally, one of the lab technicians decided to draw my blood. She took my urine and she drew my blood this one day in particular. And I'll never forget this because it, it's so vivid in my mind because it was such a horrific time. And the doctor walked out of the, the visiting room, well, the room that I was sitting in. And he said, you know, I'm kind of tired of you coming here. And that crushed me. It completely crushed me. And so the nurse heard what he said. And I I actually knew some of the the nurses and the medical assistants that work there. And so they went and they talked to the lab technician and she actually came in and it wasn't an order from the doctor, but she drew my blood and she took a urine. And when she took my urine, nothing showed up. When she drew my blood and did a quant test, it's called a quant. And when she did that test, I think that's an abbreviation and it showed my levels being really high to be pregnant. And She thought it was odd that it showed up one way, but didn't show up another when the numbers were high enough to actually be able to show up in my urine. And so she brought it to the doctor's attention. Now, I was at this appointment for two hours because the doctor refused to let me come back in and and for him to talk to me about what possibly can be happening. And so I found myself in the ER because I couldn't stand. I couldn't walk I was basically almost crawling into the office at that point. And it took me so long just to get from the car to the door and then to get in there to be told that, you know, I'm kind of tired of seeing you in here and you're you're just complaining and it's not that serious. And that's what I was being told at the time, not knowing that I had an ectopic pregnancy until much later. Um, Almost until it was too late because I ended up my mom was an advocate for me. And I'm so thankful for that because had she not said I had enough and this doctor is going to admit you, we are not going to leave the hospital. And so even the hospitals were sending me back home. They would tell me to follow up with my OBGYN and when I go to see him, he'll tell me there's nothing I could do for you. And so at some point, my mother got involved and she was very frustrated with the situation and she had some nice, some not so nice words for my doctor. And long story short, I got admitted and I remember my mom left to go get me some clothes because all of this happened so quickly and she left the hospital once they had got me situated and by the time she got from the inside of the hospital, maybe, and drove her car to a stoplight outside of the garage, they were willing me back into the operating room for emergency surgery. They told me that I had internal bleeding in my back cavity and I almost died. Wow. So eventually,
1: by the time uh, things got to a point where they seemed to be pretty bad and you ended up in the emergency room, you needed surgery.
2: Yes, I needed surgery. And had they listened to me before, this wouldn't have been a situation to where um, I would have been almost losing my life. And the reason why I had so much pain and I couldn't really move properly was because of the internal bleeding.
1: And so so then after the surgery,
2: what happened? So after the surgery, I remember the doctor went on vacation. He left me in the hospital. And went on a vacation and another doctor had to take over. Now, when you're going through surgery, I'm not sure if many people know this, but when you have surgery and you need to follow up with the doctor, most doctors are not going to see you and, and correct someone else's work or even just look at anyone else's work at that, you know, for that matter. And so anytime anything went wrong, once I was discharged, I had to wait for this same doctor. And because I didn't know, I really, to be honest, I didn't know any better. I thought that the doctor knew what he was doing and that he was right and I was wrong because he went to school. He's the professional and this is his expertise. And so I second guessed myself a lot. Wow.
1: So we're going to learn more about how this story ends right after we take a short break for a
0: medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, proud supporter of the many individuals and organizations who are working together to end cancer as a cause of death. Learn more about the Your Cancer movement at yourcancer.org. This is a Medical Minute about survivorship. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. For cancer survivors, the return to normal activities and relationships can be difficult, and some survivors face long-term side effects resulting from their treatment, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources are available to help keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. We're discussing ways to build a relationship with your doctor. And you were telling us about kind of your experience uh, with endometriosis and uh, some of the difficulties that you had uh, first in getting diagnosed with endometriosis and, and treated uh, appropriately. And then um, you, you left us right before the break uh, at the part of the story where um, you were continuing to have symptoms. You went to the emergency room and by that point uh, were diagnosed uh, with internal bleeding and so on and taken back to surgery. Um, but after the surgery, your, your doctor went on vacation and so um, were there for a left in the hands of another doctor, but subsequent to that went back to the first doctor with whom you really didn't have, it seems,
2: a great relationship So tell us what happened after that. Well, that sounds about right. I would I can say now that I don't think I had a great relationship with him. And so what happened was um, once I had to go for my follow up, he was back in town. And so that was maybe a week or so later. I went for my first week follow up and I expressed to him at that time how I felt because I started to grow very agitated at this point. And just to find out that I could have died in that process. And so I wanted him to be clear on how I was feeling. And this is when I started utilizing my voice a little more with him. And that's when he grew kind of more frustrated with me at the same time. And so he started allowing the other doctors within the practice that he was bringing in to actually see me when I came in. So my my communication with him and my interaction became very minimal with him at this point. And so two years, fast forward to two years later, I get diagnosed with endometriosis. Thankfully, he did pass me on to one of his other colleagues because they was familiar with the symptoms and, you know, kind of the things that I was exp- explaining to them with my medical history and things of that nature. So this doctor, as soon as I met with him the first day and I told him what I've been experiencing all these years and he said, have you ever heard of endometriosis? And I said, no. And I remember his name and everything. And I'm so thankful to him because he scheduled surgery. Um, I remember May 18, 2001, I got diagnosed and I thought that would be the end of my my woes and that I would be better because there would be something I could take for it. And then when I woke up and I found out I had this disease and then there was no cure, That was another bummer, um, especially after finding out when I had the ectopic pregnancy that I wouldn't be able to have kids moving forward. And that was another blow for me. So I've been having a lot of um, hard hits uh, throughout life because of dealing with endometriosis and then also being told that it's a possibility because of the medication that they had me on at the time that um, I am very prone and I could get cancer. And that's where my advocacy comes in with breast and ovarian cancer because of the prevalence with endometriosis.
1: So tell us a little bit more about that. Tell us about your transition into advocacy and and um, how that kind of took shape.
2: So it was about 2010. And I said to uh, my husband at the time, I said, I'm just really frustrated with not being heard. And I remember having these conversations with him and expressing that I didn't want other people to experience what I did in a way that I did. As I I told you in the beginning, that it was a lot of not being heard. And so because I started doing more research and I started getting into research and just wanting to know more about my body and these different things that was happening and not just taking the doctor's word for what was happening to me, I asked more questions. And so when I started to get answers and I really started to feel more excited about how the things was turning in my life, even though I was still going through surgeries, I said, I wanna help other people. I want them to know that it's okay to actually voice their concerns and their wants and what they want their medical health to look like. And so I started the Sister Girl Foundation and I did that because, like I said, no more suffering in silence. And that's that's kind of like my tagline, you know, empowering women through it. So we're no longer suffering in silence. Our voices are heard and we are a part of the care plan. And so that's when the advocacy started. And I had to do it for myself first. I had to learn how to actually stand up for myself and with education. You know, I didn't have to be a doctor to be educated. You know, I just had to really understand what was happening to me. So I knew the right questions to ask and the right things to to do in in regards to how to research research. You know, it's not just about Googling. It was more so asking the right question to the doctors, to their team, to know what reputable sites I can look on to see what information they can give me. And so I wanted to pass that information along to other women who may actually be going through the same thing that I was going through. Will it be endometriosis, breast cancer or ovarian cancer?
1: So it sounds like, you know, finding a good relationship with your doctor just has many different facets to it. Um, you know, it started, I, I think, one of the things that you mentioned before the break was finding a doctor, uh, not only whom you feel comfortable with, but somebody who is knowledgeable um, in the field. So what practical advice do you give to uh, women and in fact, men, all patients, um, in terms of finding a doctor with whom you can really
2: build uh, a relationship? So one thing I would say is, We don't always know just by looking them up online. We can read their bio and see what their expertise is when we're referred to these physicians. But one thing is you can figure these things out when you have that initial appointment. When you have that appointment, I've learned to be open and honest about what I'm looking for and my concerns. And so when you're looking for and you're, you're vetting your doctor, you have to really do your homework, but you have to actually sit in that appointment and be open and honest. And even with your past hurts, I've learned to actually express that to my new doctor so they will see and understand if I'm reluctant in any way. And then they can assure me that, you know, what I'm looking for, I'm in the right place. And so they won't look at it as if I'm being a tough patient or I'm I'm a difficult patient. So we don't want that that stigma placed on us. And so building your relationship and that rapport with your physician is the initial being honest. We have to start somewhere. And in order to build that trust, the physician in return has to give us something. We have to see them actually put in something that says, "Okay, so they're listening to me. It can be whether we're building our care plan together and you're actually sitting and having dialogue with me, making me feel as if you're actually wanting me to be a part and you're inviting me to be a part of my care plan process process.
1: Yeah, that's that's so important. What advice do you have in terms of you know knowing that the care plan uh, that you're building together with your doctor really uh, is something that uh, is going to work for you? Because I think that the other part of your frustration when we were listening to your story was the fact that you were going back and forth to the doctor. First of all, it sounded like you didn't feel that the doctor listened to you. But the second part that I think sounded to be frustrating to you was really that there wasn't any cure to your symptoms. So you were continuing to have this excruciating pain, and it really nothing was helping. So, you know, what advice do you have for people when, you know, your doctor may or may not have the answer to your problems,
2: so what happens is, and this is something I had to really teach myself throughout the years, and it's still a, a daily practice because what I realized is nothing happens overnight and everything takes trial and error and it's a process through it. And what I had to really do was to realize is to take care of my mind and my body and my soul, not just the illness at hand. And so when we're doing that, because when one thing isn't working, another thing may not work properly. And so when we're actually... Putting our lives into these doctors' hands, one thing I would love for everyone to realize is we are all human at this at, at the same time. We are all human, and we have to deal with ourselves before we can expect this this grandiose type of um, reaction and and end result from our physicians. Meaning, if I'm dealing with um, mental health issues, my anxiety and depression. When I go into the office, if I'm expressing to my doctor what I'm feeling, even if it's not something that he's treating me for, but he needs to, I feel like the doctors need to know everything that's happening with us as a whole. So that way they would know how to treat us as a whole. When you're treating my illness, I want you to make sure that you know that I'm dealing with mental health issues or I'm just not happy about certain things, even when there's not a cure. I had to deal with that. You know, I had to go to therapy. So that's when I said, when you take care of your mind while they're taking care of your body, then everything kind of works um, together. And so when that happens, because a lot of people are diagnosed with incurable diseases. And when that happens, how do you handle that? What are you doing to take care of that? Because just when they're taking care of the cancer or the or the illness, it's not going to make that mental anguish go away you know, what's in the back of your mind. And so if we're actually seeking that help, because my doctors now, my team is amazing. And so what happens is they ask these questions, you know, they would ask me, well, how is your mood? In the beginning, when that question was posed to me, I didn't like it. I didn't like it because I didn't realize that I really was feeling these anxiety and depression symptoms. I didn't know what that looked like. And so I feel like if we actually take those components while we're treating whatever that treatment looks like and we add that in and we treat the patient as a whole, I think that we will have a better outcome between doctor and patient.
1: Yeah. And it sounds like communication is really the key here. Um not only being heard but being able to 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 voice your concerns and also being able to hear questions like how is your mood? Um and knowing that that's coming from a good place, a holistic place in terms of in terms of your care. Um what are your thoughts on getting a second opinion. If you if you go to that initial appointment and you are sitting in that office with the doctor and you it, it just aren't clicking. I mean, there's something that you, you feel is not quite right. Either you, you just feel like the doctor isn't listening to you or might not have the expertise that you're looking for you know, do you feel any trepidation in kind of seeking another opinion? And and how do you do that? And what advice do you have for other patients who might be in the same situation?
2: I would say, yes, you definitely feel intimidated because you, one, you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, even though you're hurting yourself by not being honest about what you need. And so what I always tell patients and I tell myself is to... You got to speak life into any situation that you have. You have to tell people and show people how to treat you. So if it's something happening in your life, you have to be the one to say that this isn't working for me. And it may be hard at times. And so you actually you take a moment, even if you don't say it in that exact appointment, you can always, you know, there's different outlets to where you can let that doctor know you can call the office, you can talk to the nurse, you can talk to so many different avenues if you're not comfortable with sitting with the doctor face to face to say that, you know, I would like a a second opinion. But what's another point that's helpful if the doctors offer that, if they're telling you you have this illness, but I think that should come at the same time, too, and say you're welcome to do a second opinion. I can actually refer some physicians to you, one or two to you at least. So if the doctor is doing that, that would even make me feel even more comfortable, um, even if I had to use that doctor if I decide to use that doctor overall. And it just shows that the doctor's actually respecting my wishes and respecting me being a part of my care plan. And so it, it looks so many different ways that this can be handled. And I know for myself, no, I never asked for a second opinion in the beginning. I was too so nervous to do that because I really didn't understand, like I said, what I actually needed. And so for patients who don't understand or they're coming, they're coming into their appointments, feeling the same way, you're just frustrated. And now the doctor that you thought was going to be able to help you, they're not able to help you. So now what do you do? You asked for a second opinion.
0: Shantana Hazel is an author, healthcare advocate, and founder of the Sister Girl Foundation. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.